historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. A few words about myself. I was born in Israel, lived in Israel to the age of almost 11, moved to the United States, and spent eight years, almost eight years, in the United States in the Washington, D.C. area. At the age of 18, I came back to Israel. I was drafted into the Israeli army, as most other Israelis in the military service. Spent time in Lebanon in the first uh, Lebanon war. Later on, I uh, went to university, set up a tour business, set up this podcast, and I'm now speaking to you from Tel Aviv. In the first three episodes, I described the great tragedy that befell upon Israel by the Hamas slash ISIS slash Nazi ideology butchers that murdered at least 1,400 people in the area of the Gaza border. I shall continue to do this today in the fourth episode. Um, but I want to start with a question, and the question is, why is it that they hate us so much? And I'm not speaking only about the Hamas. Israelis are well aware of the demonstrations around Europe, in the United States, on university campuses in the United States, calling basically for their eradication, for the termination, for the extermination of the state of Israel. There are students that are holding up signs that call for the complete disappearance of the Jewish state. Why do they hate us so much? The hatred for the state of Israel has been around for about 75 years, basically since the establishment of the state of Israel. The hatred for Jews has been around for as long as humanity basically has been around. I described before in the former episodes the difference between ancient anti-Semitism, which basically was more of a Christian anti-Semitism, that gave the Jews a choice. You either become like me, in other words, you either adopt Jesus, or I expel you from this land, or even I kill you. The new anti-Semitism doesn't give you that option. The new anti-Semitism that was started by the Nazis ideologically basically says that the Jews are different in their blood, in their size of their head, and the size of their nose, in their race. Everything is different about them than, in a sense, the Jews are not really human beings. Hence, you can never be like me. Hence, as the Nazis attempted to do, I will murder you all. Now, many anti-Semites of modern day, and I say modern day, I mean today, now, they say, we're not anti-Semites, we don't hate Jews, we hate the idea of the state of Israel, and the state of Israel should be eliminated. That's all, we're not anti-Jewish. And although anti-Semitism has resurfaced, it's actually becoming trendy to be an anti-Semite, the people advocating for it don't really want to be called anti-Semite. And these people often have Leaders that maybe didn't expect to be or to become their leaders. Now, I just want to say that as an Israeli, I heard the person who's supposed to be a leader of the world, or at least one of the leaders of the world, that is Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Antonio Guterres. And he made a speech condemning the Hamas attacks. And I was very, I listened to his speech. I was very um, happy that he made that announcement. However, he then went on to say, and he drew direct symmetry with Israel defending itself. And I quote, he said, It should be recognized that the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. For 56 years, the Palestinians have been under a suffocating occupation. The lands are taken. 
Their economy is paralyzed and their homes destroyed. And I say, Mr. Secretary, really? Really? How dare you make that symmetry? Dear Mr. Secretary, the UN, which you are currently the leader of, has done nothing but perpetuate the conflict between Israel and the Arab world. Yes, I said, perpetuate the conflict. And I'm going to prove this very shortly. But before I do that, Mr. Secretary, let me ask you, do you have any clue what you're talking about? And you do have a clue. Do you have any clue how many times Israel offered a two-state solution to the Palestinians only to be turned down every single time? And never have the Palestinian leadership agreed even to propose their own peace plan, their own plan for two-state solution. Unless, of course, that solution included the disappearance of the state of Israel. In 1947, there was a partition plan that was agreed upon by the UN having or making two states, an agreement of two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews living in this land agreed to it, and the Arabs turned it down. Not only did they turn it down, but they threatened to go to war and destroy whatever Jewish state comes about. And I quote, we will push the Jews into the sea if any Jewish state comes about. Since then, the Arab world has attempted to destroy Israel. It took five major wars with the Arab countries to realize that they will not, for them to realize that they will not defeat Israel militarily. In 1948, what we call the War of Independence, in 1956, the Sinai Campaign, 1967, the Six-Day War, 1970, the War of Attrition, and 1973, the Yom Kippur War, or as the Arabs call it, the Sixth of October War. We thought, with our Jewish and Western naivety, naivete, that now they have had enough of wars, enough of conflict, that they are ready to sign peace, not because they love us, because they don't, but because they want to celebrate life, family, community, nationhood, and all else that, has life, that, that life has to offer. Palestinian leadership, knowing our mindset, knowing the Israeli mindset, fooled us to believe that they wanted peace. Even though many Israelis were suspicious of their motives, our leadership, politically left and right, agreed on several occasions to a two-state solution. Once again, only to be turned down over and over again. Should I mention some of these, Mr. Secretary? How about the 1991 Madrid Conference for Peace? Or 1993, the Oslo Agreements that led to the White House lawn signing with President Clinton in charge? What do we get from that, we the Israelis? Suicide bombers that wanted to derail any attempt to have peace. And while the leader of the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat, said, oh, I denounce it in English, in Arabic, he, killed for, he called for more and more suicide bombers. In 2000, the Camp David Accords, or the attempt at Camp David Accords, with Ehud Barak, the Israeli Prime Minister, under President Clinton, and Yasser Arafat, the President of the Palestinians, offered peace that basically would have given 94% of the West Bank and all of Gaza to the Palestinians for self-determination and for statehood. And by the way, the 6% they wouldn't get were to be compensated in the state of Israel proper. What do we get from that? Suicide bombers. Suicide bombers, explosions, death of Israelis. How about the roadmap for peace? In 2003, a plan that was introduced to the Middle East by what was then called the Quartet, which was the United States, Russia, the European Union, and the United Nations. The purpose of the plan was to establish clearly defined benchmarks and goals for progress in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process with the aim of reaching a comprehensive settlement, a solution to the conflict by 2005. What do we get? Once again, Terrorism from the Palestinians, 
not agreeing to any part of the plan, unless, again, it had to do with the destruction of Israel. Well, in 2005, that's only two years after this plan came about, Israel decides to unilaterally leave the Gaza Strip. What happened then? Well, the Palestinian Authority, the same authority that rules the West Bank today, took over the area of Gaza, very quickly held an election. In that election, the Hamas overwhelmingly won the majority. The Palestinian Authority, not willing to cede power to the Hamas, basically said, null and void, the elections don't count. And that's when the Hamas and the Palestinian Authority went into a mini-civil war in which the Palestinian Authority was killed by the Hamas. And if you remember back, the Hamas operatives, the Hamas butchers, in order to bring their point home, would throw the leadership of the Fatah, which is the organization within the Palestinian Authority, they would throw them off 10-story buildings, plunging them to their death. Did you get the part about Israel leaving Gaza in 2005? That is 18 years ago, Mr. General Secretary of the UN, 18 years ago, Israel has not conquered Gaza. Furthermore, Israel has allowed Palestinian workers from the Gaza to come into Israel in the tens of thousands. The idea is that the Israeli employer will pay a tax on these Palestinian workers from Gaza. That tax would go to the authority, and the authority would then spend it, hopefully, on infrastructure for education, for transportation, for medical. But we all know that the purpose of Hamas and the Gazans was never to better their economy. The purpose was to use the money for what they call resistance against Israel, which translate in Arab terms in the Gaza as the butchering of Israelis. We now know that many of the Gazan workers that came into Israel, innocent workers that came into work, right? Well, we now know that many of them kept records of which Israeli family live, uh, lives on which kibbutz, who has how many children, who has a dog, they even wrote down. All this was to arm Hamas so that they can carry out their butchering. So, Mr. General Secretary of the UN, when you say that Hamas did not do this in a vacuum, what do you mean? Would you dare to say the same thing? Would you draw a symmetry between, let's say, the United States and Al-Qaeda the day after 9-11, where almost 3,000 innocent American civilians were murdered in cold blood? Would you say that? Because the U.S. has bases in the Middle East and has, act and has been active in the Middle East politics for years. In other words, it would be legitimate for 19 Arab terrorists to hijack U.S. domestic flights by cutting the throats of the pilots and then flying them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and almost succeeded in crashing into either the Capitol or the White House. Would you be drawing that symmetry? Or perhaps you would draw symmetry between ISIS and the country of France a day after murderous multiple attacks were perpetrated in Paris. On November 13, 2015, ISIS butchers carried out a massacre. Their deadliest was in the French music club during the Eagles of Death metal rock concert attended by 1,500 people. The ISIS butchers stormed into the club and shot anyone on sight. 90 people were killed and hundreds of others were wounded. All together on that bloody day in Paris, the ISIS butchers murdered 130 people and other 416 people were brutally injured. France too has been involved in the Middle East for years. Now, would you be drawing that symmetry? Or perhaps you'd be drawing symmetry between the Islamistic group called Lashkar-e-Taiba in India. Because on November 26, 2008, started an Islamic terror through Mumbai and other places that lasted for four days. The group Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is the Pakistani-based military terrorist group, called itself the Army of the Good or the Army of the Righteous. They butchered 175 innocent people and 12 coordinated shootings and bombing attacks 
lasting once again, like I said, four days in Mumbai. Most known of the attacks in Mumbai was the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel. But these same terrorists, the Army of the Righteous as they call themselves, also planned and carried out an attack on the Jewish Chabad House in Mumbai. Now, they do that because the Jewish Chabad House had conquered Mumbai, had strangled their economy. Was that it, Mr. Secretary? Do I need to go on? There are hundreds of these type of attacks. None of them ever had symmetry drawn between the butcher and their victims. Of course, other than Israelis. Why? Why does the UN General Assembly legitimize the murder of civilians, drawing symmetry between the butchers and the victims? Well, I must tell you, I, as an Israeli, am not surprised. Not at all surprised. The UN General Assembly has been constantly anti-Israel and many times also anti-Semitic. And again, I want to take a closer look at this and prove this to you. So let me give you an example. There is a Human Rights Council at the UN. It has 47 member states, which are elected to a three-year term by the UN General Assembly. Of the 47 member states, only 14 are considered democratic. 33 are not even close. Who are part of that 33? Well, let's say Russia, Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Malawi, Senegal, Gabon, China, Bolivia, Cuba. Do you get the picture? Like I said, 33 of the 47 are not even democratic or even close to it. Now, of the 167 United Nations General Assembly member states, only 24 are considered full democracies. 48 are flawed democracies, okay? That's less than half, right? 36 are called hybrid regimes, and 59, which is the largest group of all of these, are authoritarian regimes. In other words, dictatorships. From 2015 through 2022, the UN General Assembly has adopted 140 resolutions on Israel and 68 on the rest of the world. The United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted 99 resolutions against Israel, only 13 against the terrorist country of Iran, 4 against Russia, and 3 against Venezuela. If an alien showed up from outer space and went to the UN to find out how this world works, they would figure out very quickly that there was one country in the world which was evil, was horrible. And who was that? Of course, the state of Israel. Of course, the Jewish homeland. No wonder in 1955, David Ben-Gurion, which at the time was serving as Minister of Defense, but that same David Ben-Gurion that founded the State of Israel. In 1955, he said, the UN, which in Hebrew is called Um, he said, Um Shmum. When it comes to Israel, the United Nations and the United Nations General Assembly has done nothing but perpetuate the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs, between Israel and the Arab world, between Israel and the Palestinians. And let's take a look. Let's take a look at the refugee issue. There is a body in the United Nations called the High Commissioner for Refugees. As we speak, there are about 35,300,000 refugees worldwide and 62.5 million internally displaced people that are considered refugees. The UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, is responsible for those millions and millions of refugees. Now get this. The Palestinians, and only the Palestinians, have had set up by the United Nations their own agency that deals only with the Palestinians. It's called UNRWA, which means the United Nations Relief and Work Agency for Palestinian Refugees. The Palestinian refugees are the only refugee population in the world 
where the descendants of the refugees and their spouses are also entitled to refugee status. UNRWA's definition of refugee does not exclude from the status of refugees those who have received citizenship in their new place of residence or those who have committed, you ready for this, various crimes or even acted against the goals of the United Nations. This is difficult to understand for anybody. A baby that is born today in the United States, in Beirut, in Amman, in Russia, anywhere for that matter. A baby that's born today, in 2023, who happened to have a great-grandfather that maybe had escaped from what they call Palestine, is considered a refugee and has all the rights of a refugee to return to their homeland. In other words, the UN has created a massive refugee problem. But a massive refugee problem only among the Palestinians, because any other person who's a refugee, whose mother or father escaped Ukraine, let's say, right? Any other baby born in a different country is not considered a refugee who has the right to go back to Ukraine to their homeland. Not considered a refugee. So now, hopefully, you're sitting down because you have to sit down for this one. A third difference is that the status of a Palestinian refugee registered with UNRWA is not canceled, it's not terminated, even if they committed a war crime or a crime against humanity. Let me say that again. In the Charter of UNRWA, the UN, it says that a Palestinian refugee cannot be terminated in terms of their status as a refugee, even if they committed a war crime or a crime against humanity. So according to the UN, the Hamas butchers that came into the Israeli villages, kibbutzim and cities, butchered children, decapitated them, raped, murdered women and men. But their refugee status cannot be terminated because they are the poor Palestinians who are allowed to carry out these acts sanctioned by the UN. Mr. General Secretary, you are the head of that organization that allows for the murder of Israelis. It allows for war crimes and it allows for crimes against humanity, as long as it's done by Palestinians to Israelis. You are the head of that organization. A second example of many examples, and this one being totally anti-Semitic, was that in 1975, the United Nations General Assembly Resolution Number 3379, adopted again on the 10th of November 1975 by a vote of 72 against 35. It determined that Zionism which everyone knows is the building of a Jewish homeland, a Jewish state, the only Jewish state in the world. It determined, again, the United Nations, that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. In other words, it doesn't really have a right to exist, the Jewish homeland. The Israeli ambassador to the UN at the time was Chaim Herzog. And he said, and I quote the following, I can point with pride to the Arab ministers who have served in my government to the Arab deputy speaker of my parliament, to Arab officers and men serving of their own will in our borders and police defense forces, frequently commanding Jewish troops, to the hundreds of thousands of Arabs from all over the Middle East crowding the cities of Israel every year, to the thousands of Arabs from all over the Middle East coming for medical treatment to Israel, to the fact that Arabic is an official language in Israel on par with Hebrew, to the fact that it is as natural for an Arab to serve in public office in Israel as anybody else. Is that racism? It is not. That is Zionism. Chaim Herzog, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, ended a statement while holding a copy of the resolution, 
with these words. For us, the Jewish people, the resolution based on hatred, falsehood, and arrogance is devoid of any moral or legal value. For us, the Jewish people, this is no more than a piece of paper and we shall treat it as such. And as he did this, he basically ripped up the, resolu the paper, the resolution in half. So as I stated, and very unfortunately, we Israelis are not surprised in the least bit that the UN General Secretary is willing to draw symmetry between the Hamas butchers and Israel's right to defend itself. So Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, the Arab world is listening to you, progressive and radical Arabs, and they are saying, and I hear them saying it all over the net, Israel has conquered us, it has suffocated us, and I have every right to butcher them. They are saying from river to the sea, destroying the state of Israel is their goal. Mr. Secretary, you have given legitimacy to Hamas. You've given legitimacy to the butchering of children, women, men, elderly to murdering parents in front of their children, to burning children while they were still alive, to cutting their heads off, to raping women, to abducting, kidnapping children as young as nine months old. Furthermore, people all over the world that are not interested in politics, they don't really know about the Middle East. They don't even know about the United Nations' approach to Israel and the Jews. They look at this, they hear you, and they think, oh, well, the Hamas actually has a right to do what it did. That is the message that you gave the world. As I did in past episodes, and as I will continue to do in future episodes, I want to tell you the stories of the heroes and the victims. Now, I want to say that the State of Israel allowed publication of film footage taken from the house cameras and the body cameras of the Hamas butchers in and around the area of the Gaza. The footage is circling among the foreign press. I always want to emphasize names of families, names of people, I always mention the names. These people have identities and have a right to their identity. But this time, we were asked not to mention any names. I'm sure we'll be able to see this at one point in the media. This story of a father and his two young sons. On one of the kibbutzim in the Gaza border, you see film that the father, hearing the sirens, hearing the shootings, wakes up from his bed, grabs his two sons in his arms, and starts running towards his safe room in his house. As he makes a turn in his own house, he sees two terrorists inside of his home. He makes a turn down a hallway and is able to make it into the safe room. But before he's able to close the door, the butchers, the Hamas butchers, throw a grenade into the room. Now, for those of you who don't know how a grenade works, once a pin is out of the grenade, it explodes within three seconds and basically kills everything around it, especially in a closed room. The father, knowing this, jumps on top of the grenades, shielding his kids with his body. The grenade explodes. You see this in the footage. The grenade explodes. The father's body parts explode. His blood is smeared on the kids' clothing and on their faces. The kids, shocked, they run out of the house and see more Hamas butchers coming towards them. They then run back into the house. The two butchers in the house, the ones that threw the grenade, are still in the house. They grabbed a Coke can from the fridge and started drinking. One of the kids, around 12 years old, caught on camera, looks at his father's mutilated body and yells, Why am I still alive? Kill me. Kill me. When they don't do so, he walks over to his brother, younger than him. He sees that one of his brother's eyes has been damaged by the grenade. He says to him, Can you see? 
His brother says, I think I can see with one eye. And so the young kid, around 12 years old, looks at his brother and starts to move a hand in front of his face, at which point the brother says, no, I cannot see. Understand, this 12-year-old kid, his father's butchered, his father's blood is all over his clothing and his face, is now tending to his young brothers, while the two terrorists are drinking a Coke in the family's living room. I also want to tell you the story of the 25-year-old Arab Bedouin man named Amer Abu Sabila, who was visiting his family in Sderot. His family was working in Sderot, uh, a city just outside of the Gaza in Israel. He was visiting them when the shooting began. At that same time, a young family, father named Dolev, mother named Odia, and their two little girls were trying to run away from the terrorist in their car. When the shooting began and they realized that they couldn't really get out with their car, they decided to split up. Dolev, the father, took one child and Odia, the mother, took the other child and ran in different directions. While this was happening, the Hamas located the father carrying the girl and started shooting. Dolev, the father, was hit. The little girl wasn't hit and she ran towards her mother and her sister. At the same time, a policeman shows up on the scene in a civilian car, also not realizing what was going on. So he instructs Odaya, the mother, to drive in her car with the two little girls after him to the police station in the town of Sderot. What they didn't know was that what was happening at the police station, which was already infiltrated by the Hamas butchers, and they were already shooting and killing the policemen inside. Now, Odaya, the mother, was in panic and she could not drive. Amir, the young Bedouin man, the 25-year-old Arab Muslim Bedouin man, decides to help. At the same time that he sees this happening, he's actually speaking to his father on the phone. And the father begged him to come home right away. Amir said, he told his father, and I quote, I cannot do this. There's a mother and two girls in front of me who are in danger. I have to help them. Amr decides that he's going to drive the family car with the mother and the two girls because the mother, like I said, couldn't function. So he took the car and drove after the policeman into or towards the Stuart police station. When they got to the police station, the policeman from his car, the mother Odaya and Amir get out of the car, telling the girls, stay in the back seat, you'll be safe here. They run into the police station, not knowing it was already held by the Hamas butchers. And that's when all three of them are killed. The girls continued to hide in the car, in the back seat, and they were not noticed by the butchers. When Officer Ronen Gabay arrived on the scene later on with a small emergency squad, he heard the girls screaming from inside the vehicle. He went into it, took them out, and brought them to safety. As for the father, Dolev, he was evacuated in critical condition to the hospital, but he died of his wounds. As for Amir, the emergency forces saw the body of a woman, Odaya, the mother, and a Bedouin Arab next to her and thought for a few moments that Amer was actually a terrorist and he maybe he had even conducted the killing. But very quickly, people who knew him and were around witnesses told the story. Amer's father was interviewed and he said that for two weeks we waited to hear what happened to Amer. We still had hope that he might be kidnapped and might come back. We didn't imagine that this is what had happened. His wife and children, Amir was married even though he was 25 and had a wife and two small children as well. Amar's father says his wife and children are devastated, but 
We are proud of him for what he did. Thanks to his resourcefulness, he saved these two girls. These are just two of many stories of heroes and victims that I will continue telling in future episodes. This podcast, the Inside Israel podcast, needs your support. I will be sending a link to anyone interested to support. I will also post the link on the website called insideisrael.fm. You can also email me, itai at insideisrael.fm. That is itai dot insideisrael.fm, not dot com, but dot fm. This podcast can be listened to in any one of the media players such as Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and more.